Listening Dog Media. DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. How to DJ. DJing is a live environment. It's happening here and now. I could just use six proper inputs, and if I just bypass the recording process and go straight to my dad's tape deck. Oh, right, quickly, whip something up. Really important. These people who turn up at gigs and you, you hear them playing the same set, I think they should be arrested and led away. A podcast exploring life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. And for this episode, an Ivan Avello award-winning DJ and producer. They told me the DJ was sick and what I fell in for him. So I did that and I got paid £15. And I was like, oh my God, like 15 pounds. You know, I can buy three albums with this. An artist whose music soundtracks the Oceans trilogy and Killing Eve. He said, Stephen, I'd love to have a go, you know, with Oceans. And he went, you know what, I was going to ask you anyway. He produced Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds album, Who Built the Moon. David Holmes, welcome to How to DJ. Oh, thanks for having me, Chris. My pleasure. David, before heading into the box of questions, did you grow up in a musical household? Um, in, a, in a sense, yes. In a sense, no. In a sense, yes. There was just, it was full of music. I have the youngest of 10 children. So I, when I was eight, I was listening to the Sex Pistols and the Clash and the Damned and the Adverts and you know what I mean? So I, I inherited so much music. And like film soundtracks were part of that. Midnight Cowboy, Once Upon a Time in America. You know, there was gospel, there was like rock and roll, there was, you know, just 60s pop, you know, like the Beatles and, you know, the Who and the Kinks and, you know, all the greats. But yeah, I grew up in a, a home full of teenagers who were all into stuff. And I had a sister who worked in a record store in Belfast. And so there was, I didn't have to, I didn't need money to buy music. You know, it was it, a lot of it was there, and you you can't you can't analyze why you like it. But there was an energy that I got from punk that just I just like I I just loved it actually. You know, um, they were the Sex Pistols and the Clash were, you know, what a lot of kids at that age they would have been listening to One Direction. <laughs> you know, but I don't know why that is. I've always had a real emotional reaction to music and whether that is growing up when i did or not i i I do not know tell me about that time growing up in belfast with nine brothers and sisters and it was extraordinary um i always say that i'm deeply privileged because even though there was like nine brothers and sisters we lived in a small terrace house outside toilet you know like proper working class, mom had three jobs, dad had three jobs. Um, but I always say that I'm really privileged because I was loved, you know, and we came from a very solid um, backbone. You know, my mom and dad both insisted in bringing us up in a mixed neighborhood. And at that time that was tricky because a large Catholic family living in uh, like eighty um, percent sort of Protestant slash loyalist neighborhood, you were a sitting duck in a way, um, and that sort of you know we our house was bombed when I was four. You know, the British Army 
raided our house, you know, looking for imaginary guns. Um, our ho- we weren't rep- like we were a nationalist family, but not Republican. You know, we weren't. You know, no one agreed that violence and uh, murder was the way forward. And so my mum and dad were, they brought us up to believe that it doesn't matter what religion you are, what colour you are, what accent you have, you treat everyone the same. So I, I'm very, I feel very privileged to have had that because a lot of, a lot of people who, you know, it, it's all about education and educating your children. And my mum and dad did that brilliantly, just on a purely human level. So even though there was a civil war going on outside, I still look back with very, very fond memories because there was a lot of love in the house and everyone get on really well. And, you know, I mean, of course, there was their chaos. But generally, it was it was great. And my sister, Maggie, she was a fashion designer. She went to Manchester uh, art college and uh, she got her diploma in 1960, 1969, moved to London, seen the Stones in Hyde Park for Brian Jones's wake. She did the whole punk thing, did the whole Beatles mod thing, you know, and so she would come home at Christmas and she, she was making good money, you know, so she'd come home at Christmas with her suitcase and another suitcase just full of culture. So it'd be like NMEs, records, you know, clothes she'd made for my sisters. She made me a pair of brown PVC trousers when I was nine, which, you know, I couldn't wear in front of my dad because he was like, you know, he was a teenager in the 30s. You know, it was like, <laughs> he used to just look at me and shake his head anyway. But, you know, there, there was a, there was the, there was a, a cutoff point. <laughs> So I could, yeah, I could only wear them when he was at work. Get them off, get them off, your dad's coming. <laughs> Were you a teenage bedroom DJ? During the Troubles, there was so much time where you weren't allowed out, you know. All you had was your imagination, three channels, and if you were lucky enough, you'd see a movie. Then the VHS came along, then the beat up you know, and it was like, oh, wow, I've got access to all this incredible cinema. And as a young boy, I was watching a load of movies that I maybe, you know, shouldn't have been watching. <laughs> and but one of those movies, I'll never forget it. I, I had a double bill because I used to just devour them. Like I just used to eat them up, you know, it's just so much time indoors. So it was like, you know, go and get a couple of movies out. And they were all parrots, so you could go into someone's house and they'd be sitting eating dinner and you go, I'm here to rent the video. You go, yeah, go ahead. But I remember this one night I got a quadrophenia and the long good Friday and I watched them back to back. And after I seen quadrophenia, my life completely changed. And that became, you know, that was the gang that I wanted to be in. And the music and just everything took over. And, and because of my family and the records that I'd already inherited, there were good records in there, you know, like good mod records, soul records, you know, gospel records. But it, you know, then you had, but you could go down, there was good record shops in Belfast, you know, Heroes and Villains, uh, you had Doogie Nights, which sold jazz and soundtracks, and you had good vibrations, obviously, everyone knows. You had Caroline Music, Smith's Records and stuff, and you could go and buy a Kent, compilation for 349 
you know, I had a paper round. I was like, yeah, one more album, you know. Uh, it's a bit like that. And I used to just listen to music because I loved it. And then I used to go to this mod club. And uh, when I was 15, I would go down on the seven o'clock bus, go and dance for a few hours. The only thing I had was like a dud bus ticket, right? They made these bus tickets in Belfast that you just put into the machine. It was like, ding. But if you looked after it, you could keep on going, ding. It, it was known as the double ding. <laughs> and uh, the bus drivers didn't care, you know. And you just went into town. And uh, I'd, I'd go and hang out with all the mods. I shoot, like my mum just thought I was on the street. And then um, I'd get home on the 11 o'clock bus. And then one time I, I, they told me the DJ was sick and what I fell in for him. So I did that and I got paid 15 pounds. And I was like, oh my God, like 15 pounds. You know, I can buy three albums with this, you know. So that was the start of my, you know, DJing. But I'd always like the music came first. I always like in my own would sit and listen to music. I just had that uh, that connection, I suppose, you know, and a lot of it was probably, you know, it, it's all, it's all, it's everything, you know, but growing up there in Belfast at that time, you know, getting off on the Sex Pistols and stuff, I'm sure what was happening outside sort of influenced that emotional resonance that I, that I took from it. So yeah, and that, that was me starting DJing and that was in 19... 83 84 so i'm now approaching or already am in my 40th year <laughs> djing because i dj'd them through the 80s and then yeah. started going to other clubs that were more you know weird and just you know you had your mods skinheads rockabillies psychabillies you had the goth crowd you had the gay crowd you know you just had you know just where all the freaks would come and congregate. And then there you'd hear everything from Farty Jack Master Funk to, you know, Cameo to, you know, The Cure to, you know, Public Image Limited. It was such a mishmash of, of just really good music. When so, did you start your first club night? Like as a mod or as Acid House in Acid House? Uh, which came first? Well, the mod movement, yeah. I I used to put on my own shows. Like I brought over bands when I was like fifteen. <laughs> I had such a brass neck. I would I would call I would get fanzines, you know, like extraordinary sensations. That was um, the editor was Eddie Pillar, and I wrote to Eddie and said, "Will you come and play in my club in Belfast?" He came over in nineteen eighty three, and uh, without telling me that he was in the TA, the Territorial Army. And he actually very bizarrely ended up at an IRA funeral by accident. And, uh, you know, he wrote he he's wrote his book, his memoir called uh, "Clean Living Under Difficult Circumstances," which is a it's a brilliant book. I I really enjoyed it. But the first chapter is about him coming to stay with me. So I would bring the prisoners over, making time. There was a band called The Scene, brought over them. The moment, yeah, I was just. You know, do it yourself. You know, just energy, brass neck. You know, full of confidence, and uh, that's. You know, I'm a DJ, and then I just sort of continued. There was a couple of years where I didn't do it much, and then I was asked by a couple of guys in Belfast, Ian McCready and Gavin Bloomer, to to play at their club. 
and that was more like funk based Latin sort of sounds you know but again I always had records so I was able to kind of like adapt and then Acid House happened in 89 and I started my own club on the 25th of September 1989 we did our first sort of proper club with flashing lights music and you know Was that Sugar Sweet? It's the club that would become Sugar Sweet it started off, it was just called Bass. We had a picture of Malcolm X was in the flyer. I remember it well. Yeah, it just sort of grew. And then it very quickly became Sugar Sweet. And then that's, you know, at that time it was starting to catch fire. You know, like more people were discovering ecstasy and, uh, and, and going to clubs and going to raves. And it, the whole thing just grew out of there. But there was an intensity to the atmosphere in Belfast that I'm, I'm actually starting to see now. And I can relate the two because I didn't realize this at the time, but Belfast had such an intensity about it. It never occurred to me to think that the reason why that was is because we've been kind of living these really unusual lives, you know, like police checkpoints, army checkpoints, bombings, shootings, you know. And so when you went out on a Saturday night, aided by you know, certain substances, you were having these epiphanies and life-changing sort of profound experiences that, you know, married with my obsession, <laughs> I was like, I cannot do anything for the rest of my life because this is, like I was a hairdresser in the middle of all this. I basically did anything to avoid a decent day's work. <laughs> and uh, it, instantly the hairdressing just sort of fell to the wayside and music became my full-time job. Which, I, I mean, a lot of those early days I was skint. But then Sugar Sweet took over, did it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Sugar Sweet became, you know, one of the great nights, you know, period. Like, you know, I've DJed all over the world and the nights I've had in Sugar Sweet were profoundly you know, life-changing. Orbital told me on this podcast, David, that playing there inspired their hit Belfast and, and inspired them in so many other ways. Well, yeah, I mean, the people there are just really friendly and, and welcoming and lovely. But, you know, during, a, you know, we were having our, we were living through our own kind of war of propaganda as well, you know, where people were led to believe that Belfast was just like, you know, going to Gaza and its current state but it, it, it wasn't like that it wasn't it didn't have that intensity you know and press outlets they would have you believe that you know you were entering no man's land and you know be careful you know and uh, but of course like everywhere you know you have to be careful where you go um, but generally it's just a really warm welcoming city and a lot of people who I brought there were able to see that you know when, when you went to like there's an argument not a very known argument but i've had this discussion with several people who i really respect and trust and it wasn't my thought it was actually a friend of mine's thought that you know the acid house culture was in some ways the beginning of the peace process because everything was so divided I would even take it back further than that. I would go back further to punk. 
So if you've got like youth culture, whether it's mods, punks, whatever, maybe not skinheads in Belfast. That was very divided. So you had the Falls Road skins and the Shankill Road skins, and they hated each other. But the mod scene, the punk scene was like, didn't matter what religion you were, what color you were, whatever, you know. It was all about the music. Uh, but then Acid House happened, then all the tribes joined under, you know, one nation under a groove kind of thing. And there were people who were mixing with each other and being very friendly with each other that would never have even been in that sort of situation if it hadn't been for ecstasy, acid, house, culture, you know, because they were having their heads turned and they were having their own profound experiences, which is like, actually, this guy's brilliant, you know, uh, and just because he's the opposite religion, why should I have a problem with him? You know, so that woke a lot of people up who came from very singular neighborhoods, you know, in a sense that when I say singular, I just mean in terms of sort of nationalist or loyalist neighborhoods. And they were coming together during Acid House and all that was completely forgot about, you know, and it changed a lot of people, you know, for the for the better, for sure. DJ. It feels like things moved really fast for you in the 90s, from DJing to then releasing your first album. That was this film's crap, Let's Stash the Seats. That was 95. Did that feel like a transition for you from playing music to making it? I think I was just kind of like, you know, I've always been quite confident, you know, not arrogant, but confident, just probably because the way I grew up, so much family and uh, all that. So, and I was always like, I always just got stuff done. So when it came to sort of going into the studio, it was kind of like, you know, you had people like Andrew Weatherall who produced Screamadelica, never been in a recording studio in his life, you know, and he was a real teacher for me. Like, he was like a, a spirit guide, you know, in terms of just, not just about music, but just life in general. That's why, you know, I always say Andrew, just music was just something that he did. He was much bigger than that. He kind of taught me to not be the derivative of the derivative. And says it's okay to look back, but, you know, make your own thing. So I used to drop in soundtracks when I was DJing, you know, I used to drop in soundtracks over the top of other music, like the harmonica and Midnight Cowboy and... The Pan Pipes in Once Upon a Time in America by Ennio Morricone. It's like, if I ever go into the studio, you know, that's what I'm going to do. Like, back then, you were completely oblivious to sort of clearing samples and stuff. It's like, never get done before, actually, because I met Morricone. My wife arranged it to meet, for me to meet him backstage. I think it was like my 45th birthday or something. Best birthday present ever. And I told him about it and he just laughed. You know, I don't think it was like, Morricone wouldn't even like 
go after you. You know, it's like, oh, leave them be. They're young, you know. So, yeah, and that's what I did. I went in the studio with Ashley Beadle. Actually, the very first time I went in the studio was with a guy called Brian Irvine. He's just this wonderful human generosity of spirit was just second to none. And he kind of showed me the ropes, you know what I mean? Like little home studio. And you know, so every time I went in, the more I learned. And the second time I went in, I went in with Ashley Beadle, who would become friends just through DJing. And I brought my Once Upon a Time in America and the helicopters from Apocalypse Now and church bells and, you know, Ashley bought loops and, you know, I think he might have brought the church bells. I think it was. Circus Bells by Armando, like an old Chicago record that sort of, and we made this track and called it De Niro. And then, you know, people picked up on it and it was, became a big anthem in the clubs. And, you know, people were going, oh, it's really cinematic. And I was like, yeah, never thought about that, you know. And then, you know, Andrew had taught me, you know, just don't be the derivative of the derivative, you know, find your own path. So I started going down the, into that, into that wormhole of 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 film scores as a as a you know as a form of inspiration so we all another going back into the early 80s way before acid house i loved the movies of like john carpenter like assault and precinct 13 and you know uh skip in new york and they had these you know really great soundtracks you know tangerine dream and it was kind of like listening to dance music when I revisited them, it was like listening to dance music, but without the, the drum machines and the rhythms. So that very much became a, you know, my sort of thing, you know, <clears throat> films, using film scores as a form of inspiration to create my own sound. And then when did you do your first soundtrack? Well, after this film's crap came out, people started listening, you know, back then, you know, the digital revolution hadn't begun yet there was no such thing as the internet people picked up records and i think that album had a very very attractive title for filmmakers so through the music on that which people say is really cinematic i got my first gig and linda laplante hired me which i'll always be very grateful for to do like a pilot and that was, she just basically used all the music from this film's crap. So that was my first experience of working with the moving image. But I I actually remember at that time, it was quite primitive. You had the Umatic recorder and you had the sort of big massive, jo like a huge jog wheel, you know, and you had to move the picture about. It's like nothing like the technology now. But I remember just feeling really comfortable with the moving image I just I kind of knew what to do instinctively you know that's something that came really just I noticed I was like oh okay interesting and then I got another movie offer which is Resurrection Man directed by the great Welsh director Mark Evans and produced by Michael Winterbottom and Andrew Eaton now I've two of my last gigs were for Michael Winterbottom you know This England the TV series and Shoshana, which is a, a film about the sort of the, 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 the beginning of the uh, Zionist movement in Tel Aviv in the early 30s. 
and the ear gun and you know yeah. you know just the the roots of all the stuff that we're going through now you know brilliant experiences to be working on but you know i've gone complete full circle how did you land the oceans films that came off the back of my second album let's get killed and there was a lovely woman that used to work for jersey films called anita camarada she loved that record and so when jersey films were making out of sight they all listened to the record and they said we need to get this guy involved so they introduced me to steven soderbergh and I went to see that film in a cinema in Santa Cruz, flew up in a private jet with Danny DeVito and Rio Perlman, drinking whiskey on the plane. Hadn't slept from the night before because I was so nervous because I knew this was a great opportunity. It was an Elmore Leonard novel. It was directed by Soderbergh, who had done Sex, Lies and Videotape at that time. George Clooney was just breaking out as a as a megastar and it was a brilliant film you know so I went to watch the film and I just there were things on the soundtrack that were amazing that and I knew the tracks Isley Wood Brothers Fight the Par It's Your Thing you knew both those tracks uh, Spanish Grace by Willie Bobo One Note uh, Samba by uh, Walter Wanderley and so after the screening I didn't get to see Stephen I hadn't even met him at this point I arranged to meet him the next day so I went out and found the records uh, of all these records and studied the instrumentation and because when I seen that screening the test screening it, the music was very disjointed and I thought the best way of linking everything up is if we keep all the gold and then we build the score from the instrumentation used on these records. And then that would create a continuity and give the whole thing, you know, it's all singing off the same hymn sheet, you know, rather than just a series of musical moments that didn't have any cohesion. That's amazing. And then I was... With my, I've another woman who's very important in my life, a woman called Vicky Savage. She she gave me my first record deal at Go Discs. Um, I was going, you know, I was on the same label as Paul Weller and you know Portishead, and it was amazing, you know. And she really supported me. And she's not with us anymore. She 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 passed away a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, I was standing in her house, and I come home one night. I was. I was just doing press or something. And I sat down on her big sofa and there was a newspaper and I lifted the newspaper. It was the Daily Mirror or something. And I, I was flicking through. It was like Steven Soderbergh to do the remake of Ocean's Eleven. And I knew the original picture. And I hadn't spoken to Steven in like two or three years. So I managed to get his phone number. And again, like my brass neck just came into play. And I, I, I called him up and I said, Stephen, I'd love to have a go, you know, at Oceans. And he went, you know what? I was going to ask you anyway. And uh, everyone tried to get that score. Like, I won't even mention their names, but a lot of big composers, like proper L.A., yeah. you know, they all went after that movie 
and even offered to do it for free. Whoa. And it Warner Brothers at that time were going, who's this guy, David Holmes? You know, like, come on, we've got, he's just out to do it for free, like, you know. Soderbergh was like, David's doing the score, period. It's done, you know. And he just fought my corner. Uh, but, it, you know, when, when I delivered the first nine or ten cues, and then I, I'd give him the a little less conversation, and, you know, I'd only read the script, and I was like, check this out, a little less conversation. Very unknown, Elvis track at the time. And he was like, you know, I don't even like Elvis, but this is so perfect. He, I think he said, I think, and he didn't say I didn't like Elvis, but he, he it wasn't like as if he was a huge fan. And it seemed quite obvious to pick an Elvis track as this whole thing took place in Vegas. I think that's what he was saying. But when he heard the track, the lyrical contact, the beat, how contemporary it sounded. And so we were ready, you know, and he was, he had, he had licensed some stuff from Let's Get Killed. And um, I went over to LA and had my team and we were all having a great time. And then he had come down to the studio. He'd like no notes, just love it, love it, love it, love it, love it. And then Warner Brothers come down and they loved it. And then we just, you know, we would, I could relax more and, you know, we were being a bit more loose at the weekends, you know, just taking, you know, some mushrooms and just laughing our heads, you know, just having the best time, you know, like living in the Sunset Marquee, living the dream, you know, like working on the biggest film of the year. And then you wake up one morning, 9-11 has just happened, you know, and we were, we were in the final furlong of the movie at that point. And uh, it was such, you know, there was nothing could control, you know, high. You know, it, it was never going to be the same, you know. So we just had to get the head done and get it finished. But up until that point, we were having the absolute time of our lives. Thanks for listening to part one of How to DJ with David Holmes. Part two is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from.